If you would please take your Bibles and open them to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We have for some weeks now been doing a series of meditations. Um, We've considered gratitude, love, hope, joy, trials and wisdom. Today I'd like us to do a meditation on doubt. I can imagine some people are thinking, really? We're going to meditate on doubt. Um, I want us to consider what the scripture says about doubt and what we can learn about it and from it. Last week we looked at wisdom and our text was found in James chapter 1 where he wrote, if you look beginning in verse number 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And then he continues in verse number six. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. In verse number five, James points to the unquestioned sincerity of God, who desires that we would grow into maturity, who does not withhold from us that which we need for the process of growing into maturity. But verses six through eight call into question our sincerity. Do we want to go forward with God as we saw with trials? We can either go forward or we can go back. Go backwards. Are we wholeheartedly, single-mindedly committed to his way of seeing things? Or are we keeping the door open? Are we trying to have a foot in both camps? God's mind is clear. It is single-minded. His generosity is single-minded. But we, in fact, may be double-minded. Faith is the confidence that we have that God will give us what we ask for. Unbelief is, in fact, the failure to believe that he will do as his nature demands, if you wish, it requires. It is because of his nature he is single-minded, but because of ours, oftentimes we are double-minded. Doubt is the result of being in two minds. That is, believing and not believing at the same time. By the way, upstairs in the library, we have an outstanding book on doubt by Oz Guinness entitled In Two Minds, because that's what doubt is. Uh, Oftentimes we think of doubt as unbelief, and it isn't. It is, in fact, having two minds, believing and not believing at the same time. But more on that as we go along. There are two words that are key to this section. The first is doubt. And the word for doubt is used elsewhere in the New Testament but oftentimes not translated in English as doubt. So in Matthew chapter 16, he replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Where's the word doubt there? Actually, the word that is translated as interpret is the same word as the word doubt. That is, you have to decide between two alternative views. 
you must interpret. In Acts chapter 11, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. Again, where is doubt? Well, to criticize is to take issue with, to say there are two views and we are taking issue because you have selected one over the other. In Romans, 13, uh, Romans 14, but the man who has doubts, that is the man who doubts, is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. The King James has a center note here for doubt that someone who discerns and puts a difference between meats. That is, should I eat this? Should I not? This is someone who discerns. So doubt is a key word here. But that's, and that's what we'll be thinking about today. The second is double-minded. We think that this is a word that James may have coined himself. Um, we don't find it anywhere else in scripture and we, we don't find it anywhere else in, in ancient literature. Uh, the mind is psychos or psychos. Uh, your psyche. Di. D-I, meaning two. It is to have two minds. It is to have two souls. To be double-souled. It's not the same thing as the American expression of being two-faced. Um, that's not, you know, which points to deception of some kind. For James, to be in two minds or to have two souls is to face in two different directions. It's almost like the Roman god Janus who had two faces, one this way and the other way. Um, that's what James sees doubt as being. Jesus, in a sense, dealt with this in the Sermon on the Mount. No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus is dealing here with, I think, the ultimate impossibility of serving two masters. But James is more concerned with the consequences of us being in two minds. That is to say that when we pray, our prayers are impaired because we are at the one, at, well, at the same time we are believing that God will answer our prayers and at the same time not believing that God will answer our prayers. We are in belief and unbelief. We are doubting. The context from last week is that of asking for wisdom. I think as opposed to asking for anything. Um, it is remarkable that we can ask God for anything and that he in fact hears us and oftentimes gives us what we ask for. God's gen generosity, I think, is beyond compare. In the parable of the unmerciful servant, Jesus said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. That is, we have been forgiven. To be single-minded means that we in turn will forgive others. But, oftentimes, we will accept God's forgiveness, but will not in fact forgive those who are around us. We are, in essence, in two minds. We want God's mercy, but we don't want to show mercy to others. This means that the problem is not primarily or exclusively intellectual. That it's, let's see, do I believe in my heart, in my head? It's much more than that. It is about our spiritual commitment and our moral commitment. 
I think it's important for us as we meditate on doubt to know that James is not the first person in Scripture. He's not the only one in Scripture to talk about being double-minded. He may have coined the word, but the concept is something we find in Scripture. In Psalm 12, it opens, uh, Everyone lies to his neighbors. Their flattering lips speak with deception. This is the NIV, but in other translations, they speak of the double heart. In the ESV, everyone utters lies to his neighbors with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. In the King James, they speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart do they speak. If you look at Psalm 12, it appears that David has given in to the prevailing sentiment. He looks at the society around him and it seems that he is despairing. He seems to be profoundly pessimistic. It opens, help, Lord, for the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. I don't think David has, in fact, given into pessimism. Rather, he is looking and he reads the signs of the times and they have not brought him any comfort. The specific area in Psalm 12 is that of speech, the abuse of words. He was aware that he lived in a society in which human relationships were being undermined by bad communication, the misuse of this wonderful gift whereby we can communicate with one another. In our society, people oftentimes want to make careful distinctions between buzz and hype. It seems that hype surrounds us. And with the prevailing winds of postmodernism, there are those who argue that words really don't mean anything, that they can't convey true meaning. It's all a matter of interpretation. What David has to say, I think, is incredibly important for us. Let me just read you the first four verses of Psalm 12. Help, Lord, for the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. Everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak with deception. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says we will triumph with our tongues. We own our lips. Who is our master? David sees the danger and he cries for help. Those who are God's people, the godly, the faithful, those who have remained loyal to God, who are single minded, if you wish have been attacked by those who are double-minded or double-hearted. Those who have double minds are deceptive. They are marked by deception. But ironically, one of the victims of their deception is themselves. They are themselves the victims of their own deception. We might think if people lie against us that we are their victims. The reality is, They are victims as much as we are because they are not of one mind, they are of two minds. So later on in Psalm 119, the psalmist writes, I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. The contrast is between that which is single-minded, this is what is right, this is the way you should live, and those who are double-minded. I'd like us to consider two stories, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament that speak of this double-mindedness, or they illustrate it, they don't speak of it, they they illustrate um, how people, in a sense, couldn't make up their minds. They're between two different positions. The first one is found in 1 Kings chapter 18, if you want to open there, because I'll be reading a lot of it. The background is this. 
the 12 tribes have split into two kingdoms. In the south you have Judah, in the north you have the 10 kingdoms, the, which they call themselves Israel. The northern tribes, the 10 tribes, have begun worshipping false gods. They have a wicked king, Ahab, a wicked queen, his wife Jezebel. They worship Baal, who is the male, and Asherah, who is the female, the gods of fertility. And it seems that a lot of people in Israel have gone that way. Well, there is a prophet there named Elijah. And Elijah had prayed that there would be no rain, that there would be a drought. And in fact, a drought happened. But Elijah is not the only person who still follows God, the only person who follows Jehovah. There's a man named Obadiah who actually works for the king, and he has hidden a hundred prophets of God into two groups, two caves, and he's been feeding them out of his own pocket. Well, Elijah confronts Obadiah and says, listen, I want to have a meeting with the king. In verse number 16, First Kings 18:16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? That's a great phrase, referring to Elijah as the troubler of Israel. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah said, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the bells, the balls. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, this is the key, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And here the double-mindedness is confronted. Apparently there are people in Israel who are worshipping Jehovah, God. They're also worshipping Baal and Asherah. And Elijah's like, you people need to make up your minds. Why are you in two minds? Why do you waver between the two positions? They need to choose. So Elijah sets up a test. And you're probably familiar with this story. Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, till their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So Baal does not answer their prayers. It's now Elijah's turn. 
and he makes the test even more difficult by adding 45 quarts of water. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large, large enough to hold 12 or two seahs, that's 13 quarts of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and even licked up the water in the trench. All the people saw this. They fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And in this, at the end of this incident, we see a people that are double-minded suddenly become single-minded. That God is God, the Lord is God, and that is who they will worship. But as the story starts, they're double-minded. They have the true God and false God, but they're going to do both. You know, just cover their bases, make sure everything is as it should be. The story in the New Testament is one that we looked at in this story, or the series on miracles, found in Mark chapter 9. It's found in the other Gospels as well, but I've chosen Mark 9, uh, Mark's account in Mark 9. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I have brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Here is a confession of being double-minded. Yes, he does believe, but there is still unbelief. There is still unbelief. In the words of James, there is doubt. I do believe, but I am marked by unbelief. And Jesus healed the boy. He took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. I would suggest to you that this man's state is more like our own than we would care to admit. Sometimes we hear the call for perfect faith or complete faith or faith that has no doubt or no unbelief. 
And I think all this does is make us feel guilty because we know that far too often that when we believe, we also disbelieve at the same time. So far, we have looked at doubt in the New Testament, in the Psalms of being double-hearted, the illustration of the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel, the story of the boy, of the man whose boy was demon-possessed. But we should consider what James has to say about doubt later in his letter. You may remember that in our meditations on joy and wisdom, we find that at the beginning of the letter, we have these things mentioned in a very positive light. And then as he goes along, suddenly joy is not so positive and neither is wisdom. Uh, with regard to joy, he says, grieve, mourn and wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Basically, James says, you need to abandon joy, which is really sort of disconcerting because it is that confident assurance that God will do what is best for us. And then with regard to wisdom, he talks about demonic or diabolical wisdom. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual and of the devil. We don't find, and we shouldn't expect, the same thing with doubt. We shouldn't expect that he is very positive about doubt and then he turns negative about it. Um, but he does talk about doubt later in his letter. In James chapter 4, we find a certain part, no fewer than ten commands that James gives to his readers. There are ten imperatives. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. James does something rather unsettling. He refers to his readers, former members of the church in Jerusalem, who have now been scattered, as sinners and those who are double-minded. He's not simply, not simply, he's not engaged at all in name-calling. Who is a sinner? Well, we are all sinners, but what makes us sinners? We are those who disobey God. A sinner is one who disobeys God. And who is someone who is double-minded? Someone who seeks to have it both ways, to be able to obey God and disobey God at the same time. And so where in the chapter one, we might tend to think of being double-minded as a purely intellectual matter, doubt. In my heart, I doubt. In my mind, I doubt. When we get to James chapter four, it actually deals with our behavior. We are double-minded. We are doubters when we try to have it both ways. I will be an obedient Christian who disobeys God. James tells his readers that true worship requires a singleness of thinking. We can't have it both ways. We're either going to obey God or not obey God. We're either going to believe him or not believe him. I'm reminded of the church and Revelation where Jesus says, I wish you know, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. Instead, you are lukewarm. When you mix hot water with cold water, you get lukewarm water. These are people who have two minds, two hearts, two souls. So what is the point, or what are the points I'm trying to get across in this meditation? Let me suggest several things for you to think about. 
as we get ready to leave this place today. First of all, James brings up the two issues of doubt and being double-minded. The question we need to ask and you need to think about is, are they the same thing? I hope it is clear, and if not, let me try to make it clear. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. When someone says, I do not believe, they're not doubting. Okay, it is not the same thing. Doubt is believing and not believing at the same time. Where you say, I believe, and yet at the same time, in some way, you do not believe. To answer the question, are they the same thing, doubt and being double-minded, we need to ask ourselves, what is belief and what is unbelief? If we think purely in terms of mental assent, yes, I believe, I, I accept in my mind, in my heart that this is true, or in my mind, I just can't wrap my mind around that, I do not accept that, I do not believe that. If that's what we think of when it comes to belief, then I think we've really missed what James is trying to get across. It is, in the words of Jesus that I mentioned earlier, serving two masters. It isn't simply what is in your mind or in your heart, your actions, which flow as a result of what is in your heart. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. For James, doubt and being double-minded is to be in two minds and, in essence, try to be obedient and disobedient at the same time. It's not purely an intellectual matter. It's really a spiritual commitment, and that is the issue. If we believe, then we live as though God exists. If we do not believe, then we act as though God does not exist. And that, I think, is the crux of the matter, because the reality is we may say, yes, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But then in our actions, we act as though God does not exist. And in essence, we are double-minded. The second thing I'd like you to consider is the question, is it impossible or is it possible not to doubt? Living when and where we do, perhaps we should put it this way. Is it possible to have perfect faith? Is it possible to have belief without unbelief? Again, we need to consider what do we mean by belief? What do we mean by unbelief? If we're talking purely about mental activity, um, then it's... Yeah, that's a different road than what I want to go down. Living in a fallen world... We are not capable of believing perfectly. We are not capable of obeying perfectly. We are not capable of doing anything perfectly. Ironically, not even sinning. We can't sin perfectly. Emily Dickinson wrote near the end of her life, on subjects of which we know nothing, or should I say beings, we both believe and disbelieve a hundred times an hour, which keeps believing nimble. The reality is we are fallen creatures, and yes, we do believe, and we are to act as though we believe, as though God exists, 
And yet, because of sin within us, there's this battle that goes on. We want to do the right thing, and yet we find ourselves trying to do it on our own, doing things that, in fact, we know we should not do. We are told that God gives generously. Some have pushed this idea that if you have enough faith, God will give you whatever it is that you want. Jesus said if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. But the amount of our faith here is not the issue. And I want to be careful as I say that. The quality of our faith is not the issue. I want to be even more careful. The issue here is asking God for wisdom rather than trying to serve two masters. That we look to him and to him alone. Simply put, we are to live as though God exists, which is a more profound matter than we may understand. One more thing that I would ask you to consider, and that is living between poverty and wealth. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters, and he ended by saying you cannot serve God and money. It is interesting, we stopped at verse number 8 in James 1. The very next verse, Paul or James gets into the matter of wealth. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossom, its blossom uh, fails, or falls and its beauty is destroyed in the same way the rich man will will fade away even while he goes about his business wisdom is needed to see to the heart of the matter in part that poverty and wisdom should not define us there's a greater reality behind the facade of poverty and wealth of our economic status Both poverty and wealth, as we've seen, can fall under the category of trials. We can see how poverty would when parents do not have enough to feed their children, do not have money for medical needs, they don't have enough for their protection, their ability to educate their children. But how does wealth fit in as a trial? Could it be that James had in mind the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and left sad because he was willing, unwilling to give up his wealth? Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And why is that? Because a rich, let's say believer, a rich Christian, is tempted to face in two different directions. On the one hand to say, I am trusting God. And on the other hand to say, I am trusting in my wealth. In some ways, be careful, it's easier to be without, because then you have to look to God, than it is to have. Because when you have, then that oftentimes the temptation is to put your confidence in that. To say, I'm okay. If I get sick, if my kids get sick, I've got insurance, I've got money, we've got doctors, we've got hospitals, I'm okay. And in that moment, I think you are double-minded. You are living as though God does not exist. Even though 
you in fact do believe that God exists. Being double-minded is something that each of us will face every day of the rest of our lives. It's something we need to think about. It's something we should not despair about, by the way. Um, to sort of flagellate ourselves and say, what is wrong with me? Why is it that the one moment I believe and the very next moment I don't believe? I'm not excusing that. I'm just saying that's part of the human condition. But by God's grace, we should seek to be single-minded, not double-minded, to live as though he exists, not as though he does not exist, to trust him, to obey him, to be single-minded. Let's pray together. Our Father, if we would be honest with ourselves, we are double-minded in so many different ways. We find ourselves, in the words of Paul, doing the things we don't want to do and not doing the things that we want to do. We believe you, we love you, and yet at times we find ourselves not believing you and loving other things more than you. As Jesus told us, we cannot love God and money. We must choose one, love one, obey one, and trust in one. There are times when we almost despair because of being double-minded. have some type of emotional flagellation where it's like, why is it? that I do not believe as I should. May we say with the father of the demon-possessed boy, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. May we not be like the people of Israel, halting, limping between two views, worshiping God and worshiping Baal and Asherah. By your grace, and James tells us that we can ask you for wisdom, May we be single-minded. This is not a once-for-all thing. This is something we will struggle with till the day we die. But by your grace, may we be single-minded. By your Spirit, help us to think on these things in the days to come. Thank you for bringing us together. For the good news that we've heard, James's dad, Tom's mom, that Dan is with us. At the same time, we've heard of needs. We hold them up to you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. And by your grace, may we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.